James Hankins is professor of history at Harvard University, which is located somewhere in New England, Massachusetts, I think. He's the author of Virtue Politics, Soulcraft and Statecraft in Renaissance Italy. He's the editor of the Oxford Companion to Renaissance Philosophy. His new book is Political Meritocracy in Renaissance Italy, The Virtuous Republic of Francesco Patrizzi of Siena. That is our topic today. Welcome, Professor Hankins. Thank you for having me on the podcast, Mark. This is book this book is about someone whom you believe is, quote, the most substantial and influential voice in Italian humanist political thought between Petrarch and Machiavelli. Okay, so first, as a general outline, just tell us who, who he was. I I mean I, I I'm familiar with a lot of the people you discuss in the book, but I haven't read any of I didn't read any of Patrizzi in my in my uh my literary theory studies classes, even though they went back, even though they did go back through some of the Renaissance uh, humanists. So who, who was he? All right. So uh, one of the part, important parts of the book is to uh, take someone who is unknown, and you are not alone, never, never having heard of Patrizzi, and to make him into someone who is part of our political tradition. So who Patrizzi was, he was a uh, he was a member of the Sienese aristocracy. Uh, he was uh, someone who held office, many higher offices than Machiavelli ever did. Uh, he was exiled in a populist revolution. He was impoverished, separated from his family. And then he had the great good luck in his life of uh, his a close friend, uh, Piccolomini, and they actually Piccolomini, uh, becoming Pope. He became Pope Pius II, famous humanist Pope. And then uh, things were golden. After that, uh, he became a uh, bishop. He got himself a very fat line of income called a benefice, uh, right in the middle of the Chianti region of Tuscany. <laughs> um, and he also uh, became ultimately the governor of a papal state in Foligno from which he was also ejected by a populist revolution. Uh, and then uh, he retires to his bishopric. He's the bishop of a very beautiful seaside town in Gaeta, uh, which is a naval base in the Aragonese Empire. And he spends the last 30 years of his life there writing political theory. He writes the two most popular works of political theory of the 16th century, mm -hmm. one on republics, one on kingdoms. And he's completely forgotten today, but I assure you that everyone would know who he was in the 16th century. He outsold uh, Thomas More's Utopia. He outsold, outsold Erasmus's um, uh, work on Christian princes and their education, the education of Christian prince. He outsold Aristotle's politics, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. And he was right up there with Machiavelli. The two of them were neck and neck as the most published authors on political theory in the 16th century. Well, why do you think he's not as, he's not known even as a, as a lesser figure? Well, for one thing, his works are written in Latin and they've never been translated mm. and they're very long and they're very full of classical quotations. So it's a big, you know, you can, it's not like reading The Prince, which you can read in an hour or two in English. Right, it's it's a it's a it's a major investment of time to read 
um, Patrizzi, and the editions are bad, and you know you can go through the whole litany of uh, scholarly pr- problems. But yeah. uh, and also, I think they were once the religious controversy of the 16th century came into politics. Uh, he was no longer as relevant as he was before. Yeah. In the 15th century, the Quattrocento, as it is, uh, is Siena one of the hotbeds of the Renaissance? Well, I wouldn't put it that way. It's one of the five republics. Uh, it's a period when Italy is divided up in, in many small states. It's it's one of the... Um, it's one of not one of the five major states, but it's Patrizzi himself says it's either the second or third of the republics of of, of Italy. However, it does have, a, I think, a much more interesting political history than Florence does, in the sense it's more of a true republic. There's more uh, equality and liberty in Siena than there is in in Florence, which is, after all, a kind of uh, oligarchy run by r- very rich people. And Siena has a little more room for people further down the social pyramid uh, to participate in government. So I rather admire Siena. I've been told I'm betraying my lifelong allegiance to Florence by writing this book. That's right. You know, the Siennes hate the Florentines. So so now I'm seeking refuge uh, for my Italian base in Siena. (laughs) Uh, We're going to have a big conference on Patrizzi next year. Okay. Uh, Another History 101 question. Uh, You refer to, quote, the gospel of Renaissance humanism. Give us a couple of fixtures of that gospel. Well, this is what I call virtue politics. I wrote a big book on virtue politics in 2019, uh, and it's basically a political theory built around the need for virtuous and wise rulers. Okay, This is a period which felt that its own rulers were terrible. Uh, They were corrupt, Mm -hmm. And they were all hereditary rulers who basically inherited their their uh, political power as a piece of property. Uh, virtue politics holds that that shouldn't be the case. Uh, virtu- rulers should not be legitimate unless they are virtuous. That's the fundamental principle of Renaissance meritocracy. So Renaissance meritocracy is rather interesting. There is an old meritocratic tradition in the West. Uh, the Greek philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, uh, Isocrates, Xenophon, they're all meritocrats be- because they're opposed to radical democracy. Um, and they build up a meritocracy in response to radical democracy. In Rome, you have meritocracy directed against uh, the senatorial aristocracy. Cicero is the major figure there. In the Renaissance, um, meritocracy is d- directed against hereditary rulership. The idea that you um, can inherit your political power, you own your political power, it's passed down as a hereditary possession. Or maybe in, in the case of church power, it it's belongs to, the, to the, the church and you can, you can use it for a while. But the criteria for being appointed to office are, are different from, from, from merit. So that's the, the fundamental radical idea of Renaissance political theory is that <clears throat> that power should be earned in some way, mm. or it has to be deserved in some way. You have to be virtuous. You have to be. <clears throat> you have to be wise. And the second radical idea is that you can get virtue and wisdom from books, from education, from study of the classics. Mm. Uh, 
in some cases, study of Christian classics, they would go back to uh, the church fathers, for example. But basically, they think that, that the, the classical authors are, are the high road to virtue, and that if you soak yourself in that, you will become virtuous. And virtue, of course, for them doesn't mean, um, as it does in Washington, D.C., keeping your zipper up, right? That's the Washington definition of virtue. Uh, in the Renaissance, they think virtue is competence, right? It's, 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 uh, it's being able to do things uh, and culminating in being able to be a good human, human being. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's, what, that's what virtue is. Yeah. So, and you can get that from books, which is an old idea. Uh, I think um, the idea that you can acquire virtue through study goes back to antiquity itself. But it's the big idea in Renaissance virtue politics. So my goal in that book was to get outside the Machiavellian box, right? People nowadays, when they think of Renaissance political thinking, they think of Machiavelli who's cynical and realistic, and that's what they think the Renaissance is about. Uh, so um, I wanted to show that there's another tradition of Renaissance political thought, which is very idealistic. Uh, it has a moral vision of political reform, going back to the time of the poet Petrarch in the 14th century, which is really focused on this problem of how do you get virtuous rulers? How do you get them in office? And how do you keep them from being corrupted once they're there? So anyway, so Patrizzi, uh, I, I wanted to bring Patrizzi out uh, into the public square a bit more because, well, for the first time, really, because he is the great representative of this view, in my opinion. Yeah. The Virtue Politics book, I talked a little bit about him. I had a chapter devoted to his monarchical theory. Uh, but here, I wanted to put him out as a major theorist and so that people uh, who were interested in virtue politics would have something to read. Right? Because in virtue politics, I don't know if you ever looked at that, Mark, uh, uh, but it's a big book with hundreds of, of, of texts in it. And there's a lot of forest trees problem for people who want to teach this stuff. Jim, I've got a quick, I've got a quick uh, suggestion. Why don't you put together a nice little collection of excerpts from from his works that, that would be easily assignable in, I mean, even in graduate, certainly graduate Renaissance classes, but also right. even, you know, advanced undergrads, but, but a handy. Now, that Harvard would do that, wouldn't they? they Harvard <laughs> did, did your book. They, they would put out a little collection, wouldn't they? Mark, do you know that, that scene in Holmes versus Mariotti where he says, um, says Mariotti says, possibly my answer has already occurred to you. And is possibly the question. I, I already know what you're going to ask me, Mariotti. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm way ahead of you. So, no, I, okay. have, I have a research team that's been working on this for three years. Good. And there's a website devoted to, to Patrizzi. We're doing, um, we're doing uh, with Liberty Fund, we're doing uh, a... Uh, early English translation of an epitome of Patrizzi. Okay. And that will be out, I hope, next year. Okay. Then, then we're going to do critical edition, and then we're going to do uh, some kind of translation. Okay. Okay. Sienna, uh, you say that it was especially distinguished as a center for, quote, the revival of ancient Latin poetry. Now, it's very hard for us in the 21st century to think that such a specialized 
poetry thing could be distinguishable. But it was. Yeah, um, the thing that people don't notice about, I didn't notice it for a long time, to say about the Renaissance is that for the first half of the 15th century, at least, and many people long after, they believed that Latin was a living language. They believed that it had been, uh, well, let me put it, it's a living but elite language, that it had been invented by literary people in the ancient world, that the common people did not speak literary Latin, and that it uh, could be revived. You could, you could uh, have a renaissance of Latin so that people would speak Latin the way uh, that they had in literary circles among the educated in antiquity. And this was a common view. It wasn't until the middle of the 15th century that was challenged. People said, no, Latin was a living language in the sense that people in the, in the, in the street spoke it in the ancient world. So at that point, it gradually starts to sink in that, you know, we're never going to write Latin the way the ancients did because we're never going to be fluent in mm -hmm. Latin the way the ancients were. So it's an artificial, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an artificial skill writing Latin verse, but one that was highly prized. You remember that Milton wrote a lot of Latin poetry at one time, and he goes to Italy in part to meet Latin poets. Hmm. Uh, and there's a Latin version of the Lycidas, for example, which some people think is better than the English. I don't agree. <laughs> I think Lycidas is one of the greatest poems in the English language, but yeah. you know, it was a very valued skill. And Patrizzi was a real leader in this field. He was a Latin poet. One of the things we have done, by the way, with my research group is we published, thanks to Carolyn Engelmeyer's my top assistant, we published a Latin text of all of his Latin poems uh, in four books. So I hope that he will be picked up by literary scholars who, who are interested in the history of Latin poetry, of yeah. which there are a few. There's a hearty band of people who do uh, Latin, Latin poetry still. Yeah. Uh, a couple of terms. Uh, the term meritocracy goes back, what, to the 1950s, I think? 1958. Uh, what makes it not an anachronism in your, in, in, in your work? Well, if we were going to use classical terms, we'd say aristocracy, right? Uh, that's what it is. In, Arist in Aristotle's sense, meritocracy is Aristotle's aristocracy. However, aristocracy means very different things today. Um, and even Aristotle doesn't mean quite what the Renaissance means by... They do use the term merit all the time. Uh, the Latin word meritum, merita, the plural, it's used all the time. They talk about the need for merit. They don't connect, well, partly because it's highly illiterate. By use of, the word meritocracy is an illiterate word because meritum is Latin and crassi is the idea <laughs> is, is Greek. And so no educated person would use it. Uh, but it's hmm. very useful to explain the idea that um, we want people who uh, in, in office who deserve to be there and that a whole state benefits when you have meritorious people. That's the big argument for meritocracy, that um, if you talk about social meritocracy, which is what we have in America, right, we're, we're supposed to give people th prizes and, and money and salaries based on coming from elite universities. That, that's completely different. We're talking about political meritocracy. And political meritocracy, you can make a good argument for that, which is that we want to be ruled by people who are competent. We want to be ruled by people who are intelligent, well-educated, honorable, 
uh, and you know why. And all these things are taught by the classics. So that's the argument for it. Um, but the distinctive thing about Patrizzi is he tries to work out political institutions that will produce meritocrats in high office. Mm -hmm. So he has a system of electing magistrates that isolates magistracy, the selection of magistrates from wealth and from uh, the pressure of powerful people, but also from democratic uh, you know, mob rule. So he's got a system where people are chosen by their local communities. They stand for office in their local communities. Local communities who know the best say yes or no, and then their names are picked out of a hat they bring in in sortition. Names are picked out of a hat by the Senate, and they put them in minor offices. And then once they prove themselves in minor office, the Senate might promote them to a higher office. Very similar to the system Chinese, um, Imperial Chinese used uh, uh, Confucian system of meritocracy. Yeah. So then they have a system, he invents a system of deliberation, of meritocratic deliberation, so that uh, in, a, um, in, a, in a discussion in a legislative body, uh, the, the, the virtuous are preferred. Uh, their voices are preferred, and the people who have less merit uh, get to speak last. And or as you know from running, have you seen people run meet, meetings? We were talking about this before. You, you put the people that you want to speak, whose views you want to prevail, you put them first or you put them last. Hmm. And then you put all the people you don't like in the middle. That That's his system of meritocratic <laughs> deliberation. And he also has a system of court procedures and, and, and norms for lawyers, which is designed to reduce the power of wealth, to put people on a more equal basis in courts. Uh, so he's got a, a, an actual institutions that are designed to produce meritocratic results. And this is what I really liked about him. I thought this is something that should be brought to the attention of, of political scientists and, and people who study the history of political thought. Yeah. And then he also designs, and this is very much a part of his thinking, he designs a civic educational system that's, that's sponsored by, by, well, it's shared between families and the city. The lower levels of education are, are run out of the family, the higher levels of education are run out of the city. And it's designed to produce meritorious people. And that's you know, connected with this whole Renaissance idea that the study of the classes is gonna make you better. He actually, uh, he he uh, makes that a, a civic institution, that there's an educational system that's going to produce virtuous citizens. Just a, just a quick outside thing. The American founders thought the same thing, right? I mean, they, they thought it's crucial for leaders to read Plutarch. Absolutely. It's crucial for them to learn about Cato and, and Cicero, right? I mean, th this Renaissance idea runs through... The, the 19th century, correct? Yeah, and this is, it's coming out of the Renaissance. I mean, it comes out of people like Patrizzi. Yeah. You know, Patrizzi himself kind of disappears in the early 17th century, but his ideas are filtered through uh, other authors. Um, I, there was a letter to the editor published in TLS by a Burton scholar, Friday, where he, he, he's responding to the review of my book in TLS. He says, Burton, Burton's full of Patrizzi. And that's, I think, the way that he, he, he arrives. But, you know, his ideas and, and the ideas of other Renaissance humanists, to be fair, uh, are filtered through the educational system, brought through the educational system. And if you look at the education of the founding fathers, they all had Renaissance education, right? Yeah. If you look at um, 
the uh, handbook of rhetoric that was most widely used in America uh, in the early uh, late 18th, early 19th century. I'm trying to admit a reader, but I can't remember the name of it. it but I looked at it one time. It's it was read by uh, by you know all all the great political uh, speakers of the early 19th century. It's basically a Renaissance handbook of speaking. Yeah. Well, the authors are some they're American, but they have a lot of classical authors and British authors. So it's a tradition. Trucci is part a very distinguished part of this tradition of political education. All right. Let, let, let's jump ahead. Uh, why was Patrizzi tortured and condemned to death? And and by the way, your description of the physical tortures people underwent back then is pretty hardcore. Yeah, that was considered a soft, soft option, believe it or not, what Patrizzi went through. He had, he had the strapato, which is the same thing that Machiavelli had when he was tortured. So what, what, what was the episode? What was going on? Well, he was um, a member. Siena has a rather peculiar politics. They have five groups that have a right, have had a right to office at some point between the late 13th century and the 15th century. And these five groups... Two of them were not allowed to hold office in the 15th century, and three were. Uh, Patrizzi is a member of the most prestigious group, and there is a revolt against uh, it's the revolt against his group. It's not an oligarchy because it's not all wealthy people, uh, but there was a revolt against his group by another group who basically represent the bankers, uh, and uh, he uh, was accused of committing treason. Um, because he took an oath, uh, 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 he took an oath to uh, his own his own uh, political consortium, uh, and that was used as evidence of treason. But it wasn't what it was doing. He was just, everybody used oaths and he just signed a letter, pretty much, right? Yeah, he signed. He signed it. That's exactly right. That's a good way of putting it. It's yeah. a, he was signing a letter saying it was secret, uh, but he was signing a letter saying I will support the group. Uh, if we come under attack. And then they use that later to punish him. The leader of the group, of course, got off scot-free. The, the, the lower level officials were the ones who got it. And the rumor was going around that he'd actually been killed. You know, his teacher in, in Milan is up in arms. He's been killed. You've killed this great poet. <laughs> you know? And uh, Cardinal Piccolomini, who later becomes Pius II, he steps in and says, stop it. You know, you can't kill this man. He's a great poet, uh, and you know he'll bring honor to Siena. So they let him go into um, exile, and he then eventually, um, when Pius comes to power, as I said before, he uh, he makes good, becomes a bishop and a provincial governor. Yeah, yeah, and uh, the intrigues. In your 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 book details very nicely the. The enormous uh, plots, counterplots, the the politics, the way things worked in this in this world, it was so tumultuous. Uh, and also added to that, you have you have plagues <laughs> coming coming in regularly. You have famine uh, setting about. It, it's sort of a remarkable that so much beauty and intelligence works of, 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 of profound thought 
and wisdom are produced in this world of upheavals and often secrecy and, and it's and, it's cause and effect mark <laughs> yeah. when are the great periods of political theory the fourth century bc when the all the uh political systems of Greece have fallen apart. You know, the democracy has been defeated by the Spartans right. and the Spartans fall apart. And, you know, it's, it's, and the, the, the Persians are, are increasingly powerful and, you know, uh, and it's a period of great upheaval, famine, you know, and the same thing with the time of Cicero, the whole Roman state is falling apart. Who's the great political theorist? Cicero, the guy who's sitting in the middle of the turbulence. So I think this is part of it, that people in ages of great turbulence and, um, and, and you know, challenges to life, people want to create ideal worlds. You know, one of the things I've argued recently in a lecture at Oxford was that Patrizzi is a major influence on Thomas More's Utopia. Uh, and More's Utopia is uh, also a, a book that is responding to, to a crisis of authority. So yeah. I, th I think that's what Patrizzi is about, you know, and I thought it was useful to talk about him uh, to a modern audience because he really shows what ideals like equality, liberty, freedom of speech, virtue, what they meant before all those terms were altered by the Enlightenment and by uh, and liberalism of Locke and people like because they're, they're quite yeah. different concepts. And I think that, that they're, they're worth recovering in our world. Uh, I gave a paper on this at Princeton in, uh, in uh, Madison Center conference uh, in June, uh, where we're trying to say that these, these concepts are quite different before they've been altered by the Enlightenment and, and, and by uh, liberalism. Uh, equality means, for example, Quality and the capacity for virtue it means the equal ability to win office based on your ability and your contribution to the state. That's what equality means. It's not a described dignity that every human being has, uh, which is a religious concept. It comes out of uh, Christianity, obviously, and it's turned into a political concept by radical Protestants. Uh, liberty is not an ascribed right. It's not a. It's not a. It's not something that everybody has a birthright to. Liberty is a reward for virtue. Uh, when you are virtuous, you can be free. But if you're not virtuous, you cannot be free. Right? That's the pre-modern concept. Uh, freedom of speech doesn't. It's not a right that everybody has. Uh, valuable as that is, I'm not saying it's not valuable in our society. But there's another concept of freedom of speech, which means courage, having the freedom, the courage to speak out. Uh, in, a, in an assembly, when people can harm you, hmm. you, can be, you can have consequences for that, but you still speak out. That's what freedom of speech is in the world of virtue, right? So I thought it was useful to read Patrizzi because he has these you know, pre-modern concepts, uh, which are still part of our tradition, that I think deserve to be back in our tradition uh, and to be uh, considered as as ways of thinking about about these things, we, we, we everyone thinks that um, you know uh, the, the modern governments are legitimated by focusing on the ends of political power, right? Um, uh, or sorry, they're legit in the modern world. Political power is legitimated by 
popular sovereignty. If the people have said that this is voted on it or they've passed the constitution, then it's legitimate. But the virtue politics people, in fact, the older Western tradition thinks that legitimation should come from a government that can can achieve the purposes of government, right? That, that focused on the ends of political power. That's focused on very basic things like, you know, peace and order and security from foreign threats, material prosperity, uh, and virtue, meaning the full flourishing physical, spiritual of human beings. Yeah. So, you know, that's the focus of pre-modern forms of legitimation. And I think that's something we, we really should be considering again in our polity. Yeah. You, so uh, the Pope, the new Pope comes in and relieves him of the exile, appoints him governor of Foligno, an important town and area in, in the papal state. Yeah. Uh, and Patrizzi goes there and he finds the, the town. It's a licentious and chaotic society that requires the imposition of a moral order. So two questions, our last point here, two questions. Does this experience, this, this observation of Foligno, shape his, his political thinking? One, and two, he's governor. How successful was he in the actual project? Yeah, I asked myself those questions uh, when writing the book, and I really wanted him to be successful, obviously, but the cards are a bit stacked against him. Uh, he's Pius's man in a city that doesn't like Pius. Mm. And they don't like popes in general. Most of the papal states didn't like papal rule. They liked them when they stayed far away. They didn't like them when it came close up. Pius is very much involved in trying to raise money for a crusade. That's the major cause of his pontificate. He wants to get the crowned heads of Europe, Venice, and all the city republics together. They're all going to go to Ancona, and they're going to launch an invasion of the uh, Muslim world and take back Jerusalem, take back Constantinople. Uh, that's what he's trying to do. And what that means, of course, is taxes. So he's trying to squeeze the maximum amount of money out of the papal states for his big crusade. And Patrizzi's in charge of doing that. Mm. So I don't think he really had a chance uh, to be a successful governor. And he is ultimately, um, well, he's, he's, it's during summer vacation, and so he's off on the mountain retreat nearby uh, to escape the heat. And while he's away, Pius II dies. Uh-oh. Whenever Pius dies, whenever any pope dies in the papal state, it's a signal for revolt. <laughs> so they revolt, and they, they, it's really kind of a terrifying, uh, there's actually a contemporary description of it, very terrifying revolution, and they throw all the symbols of papal power out, and they take over, they declare a popular republic. They would have killed Patrizzi if they caught him, wouldn't they? They would have, there's no question. And they, even after he escaped back to Rome, and then they accused him of corruption, but that wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> but it did put a, a, a kind of question mark over him. And I think at that point, he decided he had enough politics, he had enough political experience. He wanted to write about it and yeah. create his own rep literary republic. The book is Political Meritocracy in Renaissance Italy, The Virtuous Republic of Francesco Patrizzi. 
Thank you, Professor Hankins. Thanks for having me, Mark. I really enjoyed talking to you.